You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we're going to be reading Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill. Uh, as Rob said, um, and I'll make note of this in our announcements, but hey, four years, that's not nothing. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And uh, you throw a little, little COVID action in there, and by God's grace, um, we are here and we're gathering and we're meeting. So uh, I thank God for the good work that he's doing to build his church, right? God's doing the work. All right, we do not have Redemption Hill kids today, but we do have kids' sermon notes. We also have totes in the hallway if that serves you. As I am accustomed to saying, kids, you are not a distraction. You are a blessing. Um, If you do get squirrely, uh, we do have a restless kids' room right across the hallway if that serves you as well. All right, as as most of you know, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. As you know... The Sermon on the Mount is a robust uh, set of teachings that touches various aspects of the Christian life. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, just as a quick review here, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, which is this beautiful string of pearls describing what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live distinctly within God's kingdom. So we went through each Beatitude one at a time, one at a time. Jesus also teaches us about the importance of being salt and light within God's kingdom. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're hearing me right now, you say, yes and amen, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are called to be salt and light, even though, even though you will be persecuted for it. That's what Jesus says in part of Matthew 5. Jesus also teaches us about the law. Jesus did not abolish the law, we saw that, but is the perfect fulfillment of the law. So that's like Matthew 5, 17 and following. We learned about anger, we learned about lust, we learned about divorce, we learned about taking oaths, <laughs> learned about loving your enemy. More recently, Jesus has, teaches us about the spiritual disciplines of giving, prayer, and fasting. So we've covered a lot of topics, right? We've covered a lot of topics in this sermon series. And I take time to remind you of what Jesus teaches because, one, if you're anything like me, you are a forgetful person. (laughs) I need to remind myself often 
about what the Lord is teaching me through his word. So I forget. I need reminders. Number two, it is essential to know that Jesus does not teach anything new. There's a temptation sometimes when we read scripture to think like we can take this passage out of the Bible as if it's disconnected from the whole. Can't do that. We should not do that. Jesus is not teaching anything new. We can go to the Old Testament and see these principles in play. We can read the rest of the New Testament and see how it's all connected. Sometimes, though, religious leaders wrongly interpret the Word of God, right? Which results in you know, bad fruit. And that's what Jesus is correcting in the Sermon on the Mount. So oftentimes, he's, like, he's saying, you hypocrites, and he's talking to the religious leaders of the day. So he needs to bring correction to the interpretation of Scripture because how you interpret Scripture creates your theology. And your theology then all of a sudden tells you how to live this life. So Jesus does bring major correction to false teaching. And we know there's nothing new under the sun, right? The problem that persisted in the first century continues to today. And so we need to be faithful to what God has said. The main theme of today's passage could also be taught from the Old Testament, right? Especially the first of the Ten Commandments. The connection here is strong, and I hope to show you that by the time I'm done. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into today's message. Heavenly Father, I confess my neediness this morning. I need your help and the power of the Spirit. I need your help to be faithful to what you've already said. And so as we look at um, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 25, I pray that you'd help me be faithful. And these folks in front of me, Lord, they would receive your word. And yes, we're going to be um, challenged this morning. (laughs) But we need it. Our hearts need it this morning. So help us to live the honorable life and not the duplicitous life. Help us to receive the exhortation from Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first of the Ten Commandments is, You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first of the ten. Over the course of of human history, God has been calling his people to honor him and him alone. God calls his people to make every effort to ensure that only God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is worshipped. Yet, what do we know about humanity? And more specifically, what do we know about Israel in the Old Testament? What is their perpetual problem? They constantly broke the first commandment. They constantly broke the first commandment. The most famous, or perhaps infamous example is when Moses is coming down Mount Sinai and he's got two tablets, right? He's kind of walking down. He gets to the bottom of the mountain and he's looking at God's people that he had just delivered from Egypt and they're worshiping a golden calf. I I cannot imagine what was going through the mind of Moses in that moment. He sees Israel breaking the first commandment right there in front of him. Israel clearly had forgotten the power of God to deliver and redeem them from slavery. We we read in 2 Kings 17 that Israel feared other gods 
and made images of these gods. So they've wandered away from the, from the one true and living God, and now they were worshiping all these other gods, and they're like, hey, it's not enough. Let's take this wood and create an effigy and worship that. They burned incense for these gods. In the Old Testament, we see a pattern that God's people long to worship, frankly, something tangible. Then in the book of Hosea, it is all about Israel's unfaithfulness because they were serving other gods. And I'm just giving you just a few examples from the Old Testament. What's going on in Hosea? The problem was so great that the picture of Israel's unfaithfulness is described as harlotry, right? I mean, I'm not trying to be crude, but Israel is called a whore because they're so unfaithful. The historic tension of idolatry can be summed up in the last statement of our passage from Matthew 6. Our Lord Jesus says this, You cannot serve God and money. You can can replace the word money with golden calf. You can replace that word with wooden image. You could replace the word money with that professional sports team that you commit your entire life to, right? To watch and to cheer on, whatever else have you. Since the beginning, God has placed in front of men and women a choice. Who or what will you worship? Who or what will you serve? From three different angles, our Lord Jesus is making a similar point in today's passage. Kind of continuing backwards from verse 24 in our text, we read that you cannot be about the light and the darkness at the same time. Jesus also says you cannot be about the business of storing up earthly treasures while at the same time trying to store up heavenly treasures. You can't have it both ways. Like the whole idea of Christian distinctiveness before God is that you cannot have it both ways. We try to have it both ways in our sin, but you can't. This passage and the trio of examples exposes two distinct and different ways you can live. You could try to live the duplicitous life, or you could live what I'm calling the honorable life before God. What I mean by duplicitous is trying to live for all the things of this world while also thinking you can live for all the things of heaven. You can serve God, or you can serve the things of this earth. Yes, We do not read the word like worship in this passage, but at the end of the day, who you serve, verse 24, is who you worship. We need to remember that the exhortations given to us by Jesus was given to religious people. Sometimes we forget that. Like, who's the audience and how does that inform what Jesus is saying? In other words, Jesus was definitely reading the room. He was not ignorant of who was in front of him when he was preaching these words. Matthew 5.1 tells us that the disciples were present in front of Jesus. Further, over and over, Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the Jewish Pharisees, so they certainly were present. I point 
I point out the makeup of the crowd because we are, in a sense, that crowd. We're now the crowd that Jesus needs to preach to. We are a religious people who need to hear from Jesus. We are the people that need to make sure that we are not making and worshiping a golden calf because we've become impatient. You know, I don't know about you, but the Sermon on the Mount has offered us multiple opportunities to receive a gracious correction from Christ. But correction only happens when you're willing to be confronted. So, it is right and good for us to say we are a religious people who want to be graciously confronted. So, why? We don't want to go astray. Because clearly, there was an issue here in Matthew 5. Excuse me, Matthew 6, verse 19 25, people were going astray. The warning against living the duplicitous life is for us. And the encouragement from Christ is to pursue that honorable life. We are to pursue a higher calling that puts God first, which in turn puts the things of this earth into proper perspective. The placement of this passage is really interesting to me. You know, after teaching that trio of spiritual disciplines, uh, we receive this trio of exhortations. Matthew 6, uh, 19 to 24, kind of acts like a door that opens both ways. After teaching on a need to pursue heavenly rewards from the Father through fasting, the imagery moves to heavenly treasures. As we look ahead a bit to the next passage in the Sermon on the Mount, so this is like next week, we see that Jesus addresses anxiety, which is very interesting when you think about our passage today. So I can't help to make a connection that the kind of anxiety that Jesus addresses can be quelled with these three exhortations. And when they're taken seriously, the duplicitous life does lead to anxiety. Conversely, the honorable life, which means we worship God, right? And God alone leads to contentment and peace. Again, we will see the connection next week, but it's worth pointing out here. The reason why we can say this, the reason why we can make this connection is because that next word after this passage is therefore. That's the connecting point. So we're going to talk more about that next week. So we think, okay, what does it mean to quell the anxiety that exists in my life? Well, we need to kind of go back and see what Jesus said over here because that, that impacts what he's saying right now. So more on that next week. So as for today, let's look at the details of our three exhortations. These exhortations offer the three contrasts. I've already pointed out, but here it is again. We get this contrast between heavenly treasures and earthly treasures, a contrast between light and darkness, and contrast between God and what we're calling mammon. Some of your Bibles might say wealth or riches. Here's the first comparison. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. God's Word says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But, here's the other side of that coin, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, we've got to admit something here. We live in a fairly materialistic world, right? And one of the most dis- difficult concepts for some people is to, is to grasp that the spiritual world is intermingled into this material world. In the first century, the New Testament writers existed in a uh, philosophical context that is the inverse of kind of what we experience right now, right? 
in the first century, the spiritual was valued more than the material. Uh, For example, a human being was considered spiritual and material, but the goal of the spirit or the soul was like to break free from the limitations of the body. Very platonic thought. You've heard of Plato. That's, That's his big idea, one of his big ideas. Spirit good, body bad. In our day, the opposite exists. The material is considered much more important than the spiritual. The New Testament writers, in particular the Apostle Paul, corrects both philosophical approaches, frankly, theological approaches. He tells, talks a lot about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that the material and the spiritual are good. The spiritual world does not exist alongside the material world, as if they do not interact, but the material and the spiritual actually intermix. With this said, there's also a sense that heaven is other than earth, but God calls Christians to be about the business and make an earth more like heaven, Matthew 6, verse 10. So within this paradigm of earth and the material and heaven and the spiritual, how can we now make sense of this teaching from our Lord? Because of sin, the kingdom of the earth is an unsafe place to hoard and store up treasures. In verse 19, Jesus says that your stuff will be passively destroyed. Over time, the moth eats away at your treasures. The rust eats away at your car. <laughs> like I have a 2011 Ford F-150, and you can kind of see where the rust develops in all these Fords, like the same place, right? But it didn't just happen overnight. I've been seeing it coming for years. <laughs> Even when I tried to you know, sand it down and get the rust off and put some protective stuff on it, the rust still kind of came through slowly over time. That's what happens to your earthly treasures. Over time, rust just eats away at it. More actively, a thief will take away your earthly treasures, right? Like a thief walks into your house when you're not home, looks at the TV on the wall and says, mine, I'm taking it. So think of it this way. We live in a materialistic world, and Jesus is not saying that you should not have material items. That would be a misreading of the text. The question on the table is how are you using and leveraging material treasures for spiritual good? How how are you using material treasures for the kingdom of God? Here's a quote that I found, found helpful. Hopefully it's helpful for you. It's from Craig Bloomberg. He said this, Spiritual treasures should be defined as broadly as possible, as everything that believers can take with them beyond the grave, e.g., for example, holiness of character, obedience to all God's commandments, souls won for Christ, and disciples nurtured in the faith. In this context, however, storing up treasures focuses particularity on the compassionate use of material resources to meet others' physical and spiritual needs in keeping with the priority of God's kingdom. So another way to think about it is, how are you prioritizing your treasures? For yourself or for God's kingdom? When you store up treasures in heaven, there is no stock, stock market crash that is going to affect those treasures. God himself watches over those treasures. Uh, Years ago, I was working in property management, 
years before being called into pastoral ministry. And one day I had to check in on a tenant. She had not paid her rent and uh, no one had seen her. And so we were, we were worried, right? And so we go to, the, go to the apartment, had someone with me, open the door, and there was just stuff everywhere. Like there was a pathway between the door and the living room where the recliner was and the recliner to the kitchen and the bathroom. But between this was just stuff. I was witnessing a person who stored or was holding on to treasures of this earth. The thing about storing up treasures on earth is that you will die and all your money, all your stuff does not go with you. Our Lord is calling us to take all the stuff that is like in that apartment, right? Everything you own and look for ways to bless others. And in doing so, you are storing up treasures in heaven. In verse 21, Jesus reveals the source of the tension that exists between the desire for earthly treasures and the exhortation to store up heavenly treasures. Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Verse 21 is very instructive about what you value most in life. Jesus is saying that he can know the condition of your heart by looking at the material things you value most. And it's true, right? It's true. People always say, what do you value most? Go look at the bank account. That'll tell you. Listen, Jesus is not saying you cannot have earthly treasures, right? He's not saying that. He's saying your earthly treasures need to be rightly prioritized. The second exhortation does not seem to fit the first at first blush. But upon further review, it does make sense. We read in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, is darkness, how great is the darkness? So if the heart is the center of our affections, it instructs the treasures that we pursue, then the eye enables us to see. What we see touches the heart. Psalm 19, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, so I won't you know, read it all. But I, I selectively pulled out some text because it oftentimes is talking about the heart and the eye. Here's a, here's a few texts. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. With my whole heart, Psalm 19, 119, verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In the last one, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in, this, in your ways. Like, so have you ever heard of the saying, you are who you hang out with, right? Kind of the saying is like, you're going to be shaped by the people you hang out with. Well, how about this new idiom? You become what you see, right? Your heart is shaped by what you put in front of your eyes. As one commentator points out, good and bad eyes parallels a good and bad heart, which makes sense. If you are looking at junk, then your heart will be full of junk. If you're looking at what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, then your heart will be full of what is good, true, and beautiful. 
big fan of early church histories, and I just saw this quote from Augustine, and it just seems to connect what's going on between the heart and the eye. And here's a quote for you. Augustine says, We know that all of our works are pure and pleasing in the sight of God if they are performed with a single heart. This means that they are performed out of charity and with an intention that is fixed on heaven. For love is the fulfillment of the law. That's Romans 13. Therefore, in this passage, we ought to understand the eye as the intention with which we perform all of our actions. If this intention is pure and upright and directing its gaze where it ought to be directed, then unfailingly, all our works are good works because they are performed in accordance with that intention. Augustine encourages you to lift your gaze to the Lord, your eyes to the Lord, instead of looking in on the self. Augustine knows, and we should know, that the, that the battle in the heart is between the light and the darkness. The Bible is full, this metaphor is just filled out all throughout Scripture between light and darkness. Ryan alluded to it earlier. If what you input into your eyes is light, then your heart will be full of light. And in turn, how you handle earthly treasures will be in accordance with the light. But if you input darkness into your eyes, then your heart, it just becomes diseased, right? I mean, we all know that. We all know when we see something we shouldn't see, and that affects the heart. You know, in this world, there can be like an obsession with like the latest gadget. I'm just kind of using this as an example of the tension that exists. You need the latest smartphone or a computer or pick that one thing that you really enjoy. Uh, at some point in the future, for example, I'm going to need a new smartphone. But the moment I get that new smartphone, guess what? There's going to be another smartphone that has a bigger screen, that's got a better processor, got a better camera. And sometimes our heart's like, oh, I wanted that thing, and I just had this thing for five seconds. And I see that, and I'm like, oh. I think we all can, can see that within ourselves. And we got to be careful about what we input into our eyes because it does affect the heart. The last exhortation fits neatly with the first two. We read in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot simultaneously be about treasures on earth and treasures in heaven, right? You need to choose one. You cannot be about light and the darkness at the same time. You need to choose. You cannot do both at the same time. Our Lord has us on a path, and in front of you is the, the, the proverbial fork in the road. He says, what way are you going to go? There's two paths, and you cannot walk on both at the same time. So one of the themes I'm attempting to draw out from this passage is that Christians are called to live that honorable life. We are to take that honorable path. I use the word honorable because it's the best antonym to the word duplicitous that I used earlier, right? I had to look it up. I'm like, what is the opposite of duplicitous? It was honorable. It was an option. A person who lives a duplicitous life is attempting to store up treasures on earth and in heaven at the same time. A person attempting to live the duplicitous life is consumed with projecting a life led by the light, perhaps, right? But, all, but we all know at night, the heart's full of darkness. 
And nothing tempts us more to live a duplicitous life than money. That's why we see it here. Uh, the Greek word for money is mamanos, uh, which means money, wealth, riches. Uh, some of your Bibles may say mammon. Did you know that Jesus taught about wealth more than any other social issue? Right? More than marriage, politics, work, sex, or power. Jesus talks about money. His teaching about money stands in a discussion of discipleship and loyalty to God. The love of money can gradually take control of the heart. This is the danger. This is the false God that Jesus addresses here. What is not being communicated, I'm saying this again, what is not being communicated by Christ is that you should not have material wealth to some degree, right? Jesus is not saying that you can't have money. What Jesus is saying is that the greatest danger to idolatry is wealth, and you cannot serve money and God at the same time. Again, Jesus is placing you on the path, and right in front of you, you have a choice. You're called to choose. Do not attempt to live the duplicitous life when it comes to serving money. And then, oh, I'm going to serve God too, by the way. I've uh, shared this story before, but it might be new for some of you. Uh, before moving to Iowa, moving back to Iowa, and being a part of this church plant, I was a pastor on staff of another church um, in the Twin Cities. And there was another elder, a couple others, elders as well. And um, one in particular that I looked up to, he was very much a spiritual father in the faith for, for me. And many of you know who he is. And one day he shared with me with some Christian advice that has shaped how I view the material world, including money. He said, Sean, you need to hold people and the things of this world with open hands. It's a very simple statement, but it absolutely directed my heart. What was his point? The moment you begin to close your hands on the things of this world is when you begin to serve something other than God. Christians are called by God to live with open hands while acknowledging that God ultimately owns everything and you are a steward over what God has given you. When that's your perspective, you will protect your heart from the temptation to worshiping wealth, money, riches, treasures. If you look at verse 24, you read the word devoted. That word could also be translated as hold, <laughs> quite literally, hold. You cannot hold at the same time God and wealth. You cannot worship God and wealth at the same time. You should not serve God on Sunday and then between Monday and Saturday, worship wealth, worship money, worship the things of this world. If you feel tempted by a devotion to wealth and earthly treasures, I want to encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Read all of it. But here are two passages to help to rightly situate our earthly treasures, right? Solomon says this, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, this is Solomon just making an admission, like, if I wanted something, I went and got it. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, 
All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He did all the things. He had all the pleasure. And at the end of the day, he's like, what was it worth, what was it worth for? Right? How'd, that, how'd the heart do there? It's all striving after the wind, he says. And then in chapter 5, we read of Ecclesiastes. And he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again naked as he came. He's not going to have his clothes, man. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. What's not being communicated here is that we shouldn't toil. We're called to toil, right? We're called to work. Called to work hard. Do it with integrity. Again, we need to place things within its proper perspective. The call is to hold things loosely in our hands while rightly stewarding what is in our hands. The moment you grip the things of this world, you have potentially created an idol to be worshipped. And that's challenging. That's really challenging. We're so accustomed just to hold tightly to the things we have. These three exhortations is about rightly situating the things of this world under the sovereign authority of God. This passage is a blinking neon sign that declares the first commandment from the Decalogue. Let's look at it in context, because I think it's the banner over Matthew 6, verses 19 to 25. This is the banner that hangs over the tension between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. It is the banner over the battle between light and darkness. This banner informs us of how we understand money and wealth. We read in Exodus 20, at length here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So guys, remind them, just in case you forgot, that whole parting of the Red Sea thing, guys, that was me. That was me who did it for you. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything in, that is in heaven or above. Just pause for one moment. That word likeness, where does that show up again? Genesis 1. You are made in God's likeness and image. And so, by the way, don't take this wooden thing and create another likeness, another image. Verse 5, you should not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It is right and true and good that that is indeed the first commandment. You shall have no other treasures before God. You shall have no wealth before God. The gods during the time of Moses are different from the gods of the 21st century, right? The gods of the first century when Jesus lived are different from the gods of the 21st century. But the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? The God of treasure, money, and wealth continue to persist in humanity. 
I'm not, I'm not worried about you worshiping a golden calf. Right? I'm not picturing any of you, you know, going around the house and trying to you know, melt down all the gold and whatever. I'm not worried about that. But I am worried about you worshiping your bank account, your investment, your 401k. Right? I'm not saying it's bad to have that. But at the end of the day, does it own your heart or does God own your heart? I am worried about you setting your heart on a treasure of this world. And when that happens, there is a danger of living this duplicitous life. Jesus says we can't have it both ways. We can't. They're not compatible. But the good news is, is that our Lord gives you and me the grace and mercy to live the honorable life. He does. And we need it. We need help. You could, you could I'd be the first to admit it. I need help. I need help from God. If you've been bought by the blood of Christ, you, Christian, in the power of the Spirit, can rightly prioritize the things of this world, fully aware that God is sovereign over it all. It is now a joy to say, it should be a joy for all of us to say, I shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.